welcome to this episode of Making It in Asheville. On this podcast, we tell stories of Asheville makers, artists, entrepreneurs, and we help our community either uh, grow, learn, and uh, and I'll say evolve as businesses, as entrepreneurs ourselves. And so this week we have Nick Moen of Bright Angle uh, on the podcast, and I'm very excited to have you on the podcast, Nick. I remember uh, one of the first things I did in the Asheville kind of, uh, I'll put air quotes up, entrepreneur community was go to a uh, Venture Asheville pitch competition, and you spoke there, and I was like, this is a cool business. Uh, I, I loved it because you're making real things, and I live in this, like, uh, I don't know, audio files. I don't know if those are real things. So Nick Moan of Bright Angle, uh, please tell us a little bit about yourself, and this is a hard question, about yourself and about Bright Angle, the, the tweet, and then we'll get into your story. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Um, so yeah, I'm the founder of the Bright Angle and Bright Angle is a porcelain design studio located on the south slope of Asheville, North Carolina. Our specialty is creating, designing and creating porcelain tabletop, uh, home decor and lighting products. So we've been in business for almost five years and, you know, we have a small tight knit team that handles everything from the design work to shipping out orders. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's been quite a journey building the business. <laughs> I, 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 I can't wait to, to get into this because there's, I have so many questions, right? Like porcelain. I didn't even know people made porcelain things in, in like the United States. I didn't know that you can make porcelain. Th I mean, I know that they exist right clearly, but I didn't know, I don't know anything about the process. I don't, I, I've been on your website now. I've like, I've watched you pitch it. The stuff you make is gorgeous and like beautiful and, and modern, but uh, I'll say seemingly timeless. And I don't know what your design aesthetic is going for, but, um, how did you think porcelain? Like, cause Asheville is sort of like a, I would say a clay, like you see a lot of potters, but porcelain seems to be a different thing. How did you get started in porcelain? Well, uh, I worked with it when I was in college. Okay. So I took my first slip casting class, which is the process we use in the in the studio um, that utilizes mold systems to reproduce reproduce products. And um, in order to utilize the mold systems, you have to pour liquid clay into the molds. Huh. And I, I I became obsessed with with porcelain. I when I first moved here, I was actually pinching earthenware. So all of my pottery that I was making in my um, studio at Odyssey Clayworks in Asheville, um, down in the River Arts District, was all pinched by hand. Huh. And I eventually realized that as somebody that was aspiring to make a living uh, making pottery, it wasn't the most efficient way to produce things. Um, so I switched to a mold system and one of the most amazing things about using mold systems is you're really able to, um, tame or harness materials, ceramic materials. Mm -hmm. And one of the hardest materials to tame is porcelain. It's really fussy. It has a memory. Um, it's prone to kind of warping and slumping and all the sorts of flaws that go along with the ceramics process are really um, kind of synonymous with porcelain specifically. Um, but backing up, porcelain is is an amazing material. It was actually, um, 
there were wars fought over it. So Stop. Europe didn't even have porcelain for, until uh, the 1700s. They, they, there was this um, king that wanted to develop porcelain because they were trading uh, with China. They were trading ships full of gold for porcelain, you know, teapots and and other yeah, other yeah. vessels because they couldn't heat water in the clay they were using in Europe. So when the the um, the spices and tea started coming over from from East Asia, uh, they they couldn't heat it up. So you had all these uh, amazing amazing spices in this culture that was drinking tea, and they didn't have anything to drink it out of. So they'd send ships full of gold to China and, and trade for porcelain. Um, and eventually, there was this king. Uh, he was a German king uh, at the time, and he he met this guy who said he was an alchemist. He could turn metal into gold, and of course, that's not not possible, you know. But he ended up locking him in a castle, and he said, "All right, turn turn this metal into gold." And unfortunately, he, he obviously couldn't. This guy Franz Bacher was lying. But what he did do is he developed the first porcelain in Europe, and so that really shifted, you know, kind of the whole. Uh, culture of, 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 you know, drinking hot liquids and, and containing, um, and it, it eliminated some of the necessary trade with China. I mean, actually, the opium war started because of porcelain in, in China as well, because the, the Dutch and the British realized that they could grow opium in India or grow poppy in India, and then they got the Chinese hooked on opium, trading it for porcelain. Wow. <laughs> So this material has like a really amazing history. And after the, the, the porcelain was developed in Europe, each of the countries formed their own um, kind of cultural porcelain, porcelain epicenter with their own proprietary recipes. So in Denmark, you have uh, Royal Copenhagen. In France, you have Limoges. Uh, in Germany, you have Meissen, which was the first one. And so, you know, that eventually came to America, although... You know, we don't have kind of the same the same materials that you're able to get get in Europe or China. I, I want to quickly pause because that was a absolute thrill ride for me <laughs> from from your personal story of looking for more, I'll say, uh, consistency or uh, volume. The potential to, to to not do every piece maybe by hand is how I heard it, and then. Uh, and then how important porcelain is and has been in history. And I found myself thinking perhaps for the first time in my life that like maybe drinking hot fluids is, is a relatively new thing. <laughs> like yeah. that, had, that had never been a thought that I had, I've thought before. And so, so if I'm hearing you correctly, like a traditional clay thrown or pinched or whatever pot carrier, uh, vessel, if hot water went back into it, it might have melted back again? Well, it would do something called dunting, which means it's like a thermal shock. So when the, the hot liquid would hit um, some of the first uh, ceramic ceramics in Europe were there was some salt glazed stuff, there was earthenware, like flower pots, and they just couldn't handle the heat, the shock of the hot, the hot liquid hitting, hitting the um, the clay or sure. the ceramic. And so it, it would, it would crack, it would pop. Um, and you know, it, that's not to say that it, there's lots of ceramics now and a lot of yeah. ceramic materials that can handle thermal shock, but porcelain is so glassy. It's, it, it, it has, 
um, the fewest impurities in it. So one of the impurities is iron, which is red. And so you mm -hmm. look at all the hills and mountains around Asheville and you see these, you know, the sides of the roads, they're all this red clay. So iron is an impurity that uh, kind of ends up becoming part of the sediments or, or, or inevitability in clay as it, um, as it deteriorates through time. Uh, the other one's titanium, organic matter, huh. you know, leaves, sticks, whatever it is. And all these things ultimately make the ceramic material less strong, durable, um, less heat resistant. And so with the porcelain, you fire it really hot. You mm. know, it has a high amount of glass. It really, the way I look at it is it's glass with um, like a white clay bone structure. Sure. Um, the white clay is called kaolin, which is a really incredible material that all clay has in it and and so from these first moments of saying or maybe you said you worked with it maybe in college for a bit but you're you're pinching uh, imagine by hand uh clay products in river arts Asheville, and then you reintroduce porcelain from that moment until the start of bright angle about five years ago how much time was there well, uh, I moved here in 2012. Okay. And so I, I'd say I was pinching for maybe about a year or so. And I still pinch for fun, you know, from time to time uh, in between then. But um, the other reason why I switched to porcelain immediately is I was trying to figure out how to, um, you know, have a business and start my career. And, you know, kind of first getting out of school, you know, I didn't learn any business education in school <laughs> even business and majors so, don't and i imagine you went to some sort of an art school <laughs> yeah exactly yeah, i went to alfred university in upstate new york and had a really outstanding education in um, design and craft materials uh, ceramic engineering 3d modeling wow. and so i i kind of got all the pieces to you know design and create but as far as how to actually sell the things that was a whole different story and so I, I realized that I just had to kind of make it up. <laughs> so I ended up creating these experiences. The first one was called Winter Wears, uh, and I hosted it at this gallery in Minnesota where I grew up. And there was 10 potters that made 10 plates and 10 mugs, and everyone came into the gallery and they ate out of or off of the plates and they drank out of the mugs. And it was there was live music and. It was just kind of this interactive experience of activating this art that we got to make um, and, and bring the community together. And, you know, I think the most beautiful thing of pottery, sure, it's great to look at and it's nice to see pictures online, but there's nothing like holding, you know, holding a handmade mug and mm. feeling the glaze and feeling the handle. And creating that experience was, you know, one, an opportunity to activate the art and two, was an opportunity to, you know, sell the work. Um, because when somebody's using it, they become, you know, it's hard not to fall in love with. with and there's with a, them. there's a memory even stronger than, you know, going into a showroom and, and maybe touching a piece, eating off of it and the conversations and the, Oh, I went to an art exhibit or opening, or I was invited to that. That is, um, I, I love that. The, the marketer in me gives you a round of applause, on, <laughs> on having that be one of your first, uh, swings that sounds great yeah well and, and then that continued i started organizing uh these dinners at restaurants with um, a number of different potters the first one was in spruce pine at knife and fork which is a really amazing restaurant up there 
Um, and we did a three course dinner and the two potters that were also making tableware for it were making it out of porcelain. And I said, all right, well, if they're making it out of porcelain, I can't pinch earthenware for this. And so I designed um, some plates and cast, I mean, in order to kind of fill that order, if you will, I had to cast 50 different plates so that everyone could eat off of them at once. Wow. Um, and so that was kind of the big shift into, into porcelain was realizing um, the opportunity to work with restaurants and create tableware. And porcelain's the most durable ceramics. And so it made huh. sense to have that material in the kitchens. I definitely wouldn't have guessed that porcelain was the most durable. For whatever reason, I would have imagined it was uh, perhaps brittle because it's, uh, I don't know, stronger. Or, or does that does that make it glass? I don't... I don't think glass is robust, but I guess maybe it is if you think of it compared to clay. Well, everyone thinks when they think porcelain, they think of like fine china. Right. right? Or like so a little little has... doll's face or something that yeah. gets chipped. Exactly. Okay. Well, it's funny. Like those those cast dolls are actually made out of the same. It's their... They're heated up to the same temperature as terracotta pots. Wow. So it's really like white terracotta. And so... It's funny the associations that people have with porcelain because there's there's so many kind of different there's a big spectrum of materials with ceramics and um, I think people expect porcelain to be delicate and thin um, but realistically you can cast it as thick as you want and because it doesn't have these impurities in it it is it is really strong wow. um, and I think it, it but it's synonymous with you know figurines and tchotchkes and you know grandma's china and actually grandma's china is really amazing and i mean i i don't know if that term makes sense but you know the the china that got passed down that was made in china is really great porcelain it's really fine and it's so fine that it's translucent you can see through it which was also kind of a catalyst for um eventually creating the lighting that we make now Beautiful. So you're running events. It sounds like you said Minnesota. Did I say here in Minnesota? Well, the first, yeah, the first dinner was in Minnesota. Or the first uh, winter wears, which happened for five years, was in Minnesota. And then I think we did a total of like five dinners at restaurants over the course of three years. One of them was at Bull and Beggar in the River Arts District. Oh, wow. And there was like 15 different artists involved. Um, yeah, there was five different potters that made tableware. There was glass artists that made the glasses. Uh, Tina Council is metal worker in town, made bone marrow spoons. Andrew Massey made candle holders. And wow. uh, it was a really, really cool event. And that was um, probably the, the pinnacle or peak of kind of organizing those events that I was involved in, at least. I, I mean, I, I, I love that. I have what's showing up for me at least a whole number of questions about that as a sustainable or i mean it pre-covid post-covid it sounds very exciting and um i just wonder how successful was it uh as a sales engine for you these seem like great events were people buying because of it or is that part of it part of the reason that bright angle exists now is because that was a lot of work for a moment and then the moment either did or didn't do enough yeah. Well, we, we definitely sold work. Okay. Um, end of the dinner, we'd hand out like a little, um, kind of catalog or check card where mm -hmm. you could, you know, write in how many numbers of each, 
each plate or cup that you wanted. And there was a lot of work sold, but putting these on was months of work, you yeah, know, organizing, yeah, yeah. marketing. Uh, I mean, it was really exciting collaborating with the chefs, though. Like at, at the Bull and Beggar dinner, I worked with Matt Dawes and I created these platters that held a tiny little bowl for um, beet sorbet mm. and it was i mean it was a beautiful art piece when the when the bowls came out they all were sitting up on a little rock salt and they were floating um ultimately as amazing as it was for me to experience and see uh it wasn't really like an accessible product like nobody's going home and eating beet sorbet every day right uh and so i think and and some of the other artists, Josh Kopis, um, uh, you know, Kate Adams, Hayden Wilson. There was a lot of other local artists that made uh, tableware that was very practical or part of the current collection they did, you know, and collaborated with Matt on what the course was. And um, yeah, and they certainly sold them or kept them in their inventory. I, I think for me, um, I eventually kind of moved away from tableware because I was wary of things breaking in the kitchen mm. I, I it happened a little bit during the dinners not too much but i was like you know there's plenty of great tableware made in china i think they'll let them stick to that and um and so yeah so i, I eventually really did did shift more into uh, uh kind of a vessel oriented practice gonna interrupt this episode to give a quick shout out to our season sponsor range urgent care we have a special uh, discount available. If you have not heard of Range before, I'll give you a quick highlights as to why we think they are doing things so special and so um, perhaps the right way in, in healthcare. One is that when you schedule a visit, you will not be sitting in a waiting room. Uh, you will arrive on time and they will see you on time. They work with most major insurance companies, but if you want to pay out of pocket, you can too. There are a very, I'll call it simple and straightforward options as to how uh, and what it might cost to visit Range Urgent Care. Out of pocket, you want to pay as you go. It's $149 per visit. That means x-rays, checkups, procedures, medications, prescriptions, anything that you uh, might need to see a doctor for but is not necessarily an emergency room visit, consider Range as a great option for that. But now I have chosen to uh, opt into their membership. And what that means is that I'm paying $30 a month and I can see range a number of times of a year. I can have online visits. I can be seen uh, through some sort of a Zoom visual portal. Uh, but to me, that's a hedge that, that makes sense. Uh, play with some power tools, lift weights, ride motorcycles, any of those things. To me, the membership makes perfect sense. If you're a family, they have family plan memberships. If you are a small business, you have some employees, you can offer the membership as a benefit to your company. Any and all of those, uh, to me, stand out as reasons that you should check out Range Urgent Care. Uh, we have a page on our website, making it in Nashville forward slash range, where we write a little bit about range. We show you some of the memberships. If you think that the membership is a good fit for you, uh, you can visit makingitinashville.com forward slash range. Using that link, you will get a free month and an annual membership, or you can visit rangeurgentcare.com and just let them know that we sent you. Awesome. And so to just kind of attempt to date stamp it, to, to put some, you know, chronological order into this, 
you moved to Asheville, you said 2012? Yeah, I was on the, <laughs> I didn't know what I was going to do after college. And mm -hmm. so I packed up Prius in Minnesota and I drove, um, I, I was on the road for three months picking up hitchhikers <laughs> Wow! and yeah, it was pretty wild. I actually picked up a potter, um, in, in Minnesota and ended up driving him all the way to Seattle. He said he was biking across the country and he ended up just getting a ride, <laughs> which is kind of cheating. But, uh, and I ran into him at a ceramics conference a couple of years ago. It was really funny, but I, yeah, I was on the road for a few months and my car broke down. So I, I had to, I had to get it fixed. It was the first time it broken down in three months, you know, 8,000 miles. I went all the way down the West coast across the desert and, um, my friend Matt Kelleher was teaching at Penland School of Craft, and he needed an assistant. So I ended up staying there for eight weeks and assisting him. Um, and so that was 2012, and that's kind of I, I ended up moving, uh, kind of moving everything down that that winter uh, of 2012. So the dinners happened until maybe 2015, and at that point, I built up a collection of mold, the whole library of different forms and started driving around the country doing craft fairs. So I spent, uh, you know, three years doing that with my own work and drove to 48 states and the Prius put on a lot of miles. I'd strap, no. I'd strap pins to the top of the car on a roof rack and got pulled over by border control. One time I got pulled over in, in Arizona at a checkpoint and they were like, what do you got? In the bag, you got a china shop. <laughs> I was like, yeah, sort of. actually, yeah, it's, it's it's full of porcelain. And and even Roswell, New Mexico, on that trip, I I pulled over to take a picture with this alien sculpture, and I had a vase in the picture. I was big into Instagram back then, and this couple walked by, and they're like, "Hey, we're going to a wedding. Can we buy that vase off of you?" And they just gave me cash for the vase on the street, uh, which. Is needed gas money but <laughs> so that's also fascinating so that what is the life of a traveling um uh craftsman like what, what how did if you were to summarize those months or that year or that time um what's it like being in the uh trade circuit yeah well you i mean first couple of years you apply to shows and get rejected <laughs> oh. and then um eventually you start you know, getting into the shows and you book up, you know, a full calendar of, of shows throughout the year and you structure a production cycle around that. So I'd be at home in the studio for a couple months building up inventory and then I'd hit the road and try and string a few shows together so I wouldn't have to, you know, keep traveling. But um, it was, you know, I stayed with a lot of uh, now friends that I didn't know. Yeah. I rarely got hotel rooms. I was always meeting people. Um, it was really great to connect with um, the people that were buying the work. And that was the model that I was introduced to, you know, in the 90s and, and early 2000s. That's what craftspeople did is they yeah. did these craft fairs, but they were making 10 times as much as what was possible when I started to do it in the mid-teens. And I remember one show was in Atlanta, it was an American Craft Council show, which are really good. You know, they're expensive shows, but there's a lot of great collectors and I was packing up my Prius and this guy who was a woodworker was next to me and he'd been doing it for like 20 years. He looks at me. He's like, what are you doing? I was like, what, what are you talking about? You know, I'm just packing up from the show. He's like, no, why are you doing shows right now? Like, I don't think you understand what it used to be like and, and what it is now. And he said, there's got to be a different, different business model to make this work. Wow. 
So I, that, I mean, that's what, what I'm thinking about is, uh, do you have a sense of what made it different 10 times bigger in the nineties? And then, um, I keep asking as you talk about these different like stages of the business, because it seems to me that it's a, all of them have been a lot of work that is not necessarily <laughs> even close to scalable. And you've mentioned that porcelain's this thing where I'm going to say you can stamp porcelain or, or fill porcelain. And so there is this, while it's still, um, some sort of a, a unit based business, uh, and it will take time and you can only work as fast as the, you know, the product production engine allows you to, uh, there is a, a type of scale in it. And so, um, before we get into bright angles, I'll say, uh, first year or uh, early days, do you have a sense of what made the crafts circuit different in the teens versus the nineties? I think, you know, I, I think one of the common consensus is there was just an aging collector class and their houses started to fill up with three dimensional objects. And so they didn't have room. So they, it's still by 2D art, but the kind of the millennials and the younger generations weren't going to these craft fairs. They didn't have the same appreciation and they were shopping online, mm. uh, following along on social media and finding makers that way. And so, you know, there's a huge disconnect between making these phases. Like nowadays, we're selling photographs online. We're not really selling objects. Um where, you know, I'm, I'm making 3D things in a 2D world. And I think that was the big shift is, is you know, the way people change the, the habits or the way people um, change their habits in shopping. Wow. I, that sounded succinct and, and dead on. I think the, the hammer hit the nail as you uh, summarize that. And so uh, this, this, this sage Obi-Wan character shows up in a parking lot. <laughs> says kid you're you're crazy what are you doing and uh what happens next you is that you start sitting down and thinking about how do i how do i get people to come to me for business do you start doubling down on instagram like what is how do you take that advice do you take that advice and how do you put it into action yeah, well, at that point, I'd done um, a couple big wholesale shows. I did a trade show in New York called the New York Gift Show, New York Now. Um, and then American Craft Council has a couple wholesale shows that I did. And so I started having galleries that were, you know, consistently stocking the work. Um, and so I, hmm. you know, there was kind of this process or production process that was happening in my basement at the time, I was working at Odyssey in the River Arts District, and I was working in the ba in the basement of my house in West Asheville. And I hired my first employee to work in my basement with me. And it's like this, you know, there's got to be uh, kind of some move forward here. I was I was outgrowing outgrowing the space, so I knew my time was up as a resident at, at Odyssey, and I had to get a space and you know a bigger kiln and. Um, and then I also realized that I really wanted to build a community and interact with with other members of the ceramics and arts community in Asheville. And so we moved into the refinery building on the south slope of, of uh, on Cox Avenue and moved into, you know, an 1800 square foot space and ended up building it all from scratch. We built all the wow. tables, shelves. We built the big production kiln from scratch, which 
in hindsight, I've spent more time kind of tweaking it and fixing it than, than would have been worth it to buy a, a new one. But um, it was really kind of this handmade endeavor just because that's that's another reason why, you know, I became a potter. I, I was 14 and I met this master potter, legendary Warren McKenzie in Minnesota, who really kind of was the godfather of the American uh, craft ceramics movement or the studio pottery movement. And I went out to his house in in rural Minnesota, and he had the coolest lifestyle. He had his studio outside his house, and inside it was just all full of art from all of his friends. It was beautiful, and I just listened to him tell stories of of his career sitting on his pottery wheel. And and when I left, he gave me these two small tea bowls. And I think just you know being gifted those, knowing they were handmade by this guy, and hearing his stories and seeing his lifestyle, I knew that that's what I wanted. And at the time, I didn't realize how many problems existed in ceramics. Um, I, I mean, every step of the way, there's some massive uh, flaw or issue or or um, kind of fault that can happen with the process from cracking or chipping or slumping, breaking. Um, you could have bad raw materials. And so building the studio, I really wanted to have as much control over all of those factors as possible. And I think that that's one reason why potters are potters is they love problem solving, hmm. you know, there's, cause there's so many, you wouldn't become a potter if you didn't like solving problems. Um, and so, yeah, so, so building out the studio with, with friends, it was a great, you know, a great community. And, um, and we ended up kind of collaboratively working together on designs for our first collection that we launched in 2016 on Kickstarter, which I guess that was really the shift from thinking about, you know, tra traveling around the country and doing shows or having kind of a consistent collection that was scalable because we had this mold system where we designed one product. We designed, for example, a mug <clears throat> and the mug was a specific size. We wanted consistency and we could take, you know, pictures of one in each glaze, put them on the website and take orders off of that. And um, so, yeah, that initial Kickstarter, we, our goal is 15,000 and we raised um, 32,000 to kind of kickstart the collection and take pre-orders on, on the production. Uh, yeah, it was, it was I'm going to, I'm going to pause us here because I, I personally uh, love Kickstarter crowdfunding at large, but Kickstarter and especially then now it's perhaps different and even more gamified. And like, there are people who are, uh, I'll say beyond expert at launching successfully. And that's not a normal person. And I think most people see that and go, Oh, I could do something like it. And I, I don't think that's necessarily always the case. Do you remember like how, how much I, I, it seems like because you've already have this history of what I'll call producing events. It seems like you would have taken time and, and, strategically produced a launch on Kickstarter, uh, especially if you exceeded your um, funding goal by, by two times the target. That's, that's really great to go over $30,000 on Kickstarter is exceptional. What, um, what can you remember from how you launched that campaign? Um, kind of what stands out from that time? Uh, I didn't sleep much. I guess that's, it was, uh, it was, I mean, cause we, not only did we build the campaign, but we designed, I think it was like an 18 piece collection wow. in six months. And so 
you know, we kind of shut down the studio. We were still filling some orders, but um, we mostly shut down the studio, designed this collection from scratch, designed these new glazes, um, and then built out the marketing campaign. And uh, yeah, were there people really- like who did you launch it to? Because I think um, one of my one of my favorite movies to to quote and say like it's a lie is if you build it, they will come. Sandlot quote, right? Like right. it yeah. just because you have a kick campaign that you have like done the work on in Kickstarter, if you press launch, uh, no one's gonna see that necessarily. And so I'm wondering. Had you been growing an email list over all those years, all the people who came to events, all the people who you met at trade shows, or am I, you know, grabbing at, at straws that don't exist? How did, did anyone know when you launched? Yeah. So, I mean, it really is that I I think the, the most important advice in like starting a business, making things is your biggest supporters are going to be your friends and your family, you know? And so really like, whenever when i started was like all right this is my collector base because they know me um and launching the kickstarter it was an email list i'd compiled over the years of traveling around the country it was um social media i I think i had you know a few thousand followers on on instagram that i i built up over the the years of, of making my own work um and then we you know we ran we we had a phenomenal videographer come in and do a video um, which is really impactful because it really was kind of telling the story of what we believed in, um, in, in creating the collection, why we made the objects, why they looked the way they did and, and who we were. So people could really relate to the story when they, when they purchased one of the products. Love it. Um, and so you, you launched, I imagine 30 day campaign and you're just, are you constantly emailing people or are you just sitting back and, and watching this thing? And seeing if it worked. Well, no, marketing, at least in my experience, marketing is emailing people dozens of times. You know, it's it's really there's so much um, noise out there and it's really hard to cut through the noise. But, you know, the more times you get in front of somebody or remind them that you exist, the easier it is to have them, you know, eventually become a customer or a supporter of, of a project or a business. So I was, yeah, I mean, we, yeah, it was a lot of emails, a lot of social media, um, but really was reaching out to anyone I'd known saying, hey, here's this project I'm working with, you know, my employees, we collaborated on this body of work. It's really exciting. It's um, kind of modern design using these mold systems. And we use one thing that's really unique about it that happened kind of by accident is um is we were trying to design the perfect uh um like test tile like a little test tile that you could dip in glaze to to test colors and stuff and um and i just made this little oval cup it was kind of like a shot glass and um i designed everything on on a 3d modeling computer uh you know after pinching it became the way to kind of make sure all the dimensions fit and I exported it to go to the 3D printer where we create the first model or prototype to make the mold of. And um, when you export it, it turns it into a geometric pattern, like ones and zeros. It turns into polygons. And so it came off the 3D printer and it had all these angles on it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, so here's kind of an accidental aesthetic that I just stumbled into. But it's something that makes sense because it's, you know, it's a... 
it's all these angles are something you can't hand build with easily. You can't throw easily. And it's something that we can translate and showcase, you know, our ability to use design and technology and combine it with our knowledge of crafting materials. And so the whole collection has these, these facets and still to this day, yeah. like we really work with the facets, the seams, the geometry of, of the process that we're able to do that isn't something you can do on the pottery wheel or hand building. And I think at that point too, I'd been making and I'd seen so many round things mm-hmm. um, just because of the tool that, that was used, the pottery wheel for it. And I was like, you know, why does everything have to be round? Why can't it be oval or octagonal or rectangular? And, and so it was really exciting to realize that there's this whole world of geometry that these vessels can be and they don't have to be round. Wow. Okay. So uh, to read that back, there were two main things that I absolutely love. One is uh, email people a lot. I completely agree (laughs) Um, because that is, uh, I think most artists and I'll, I'll, I'll say that I'm artist adjacent. I'm, I'm like a, I want to be an artist. I want to, I want to fit in with artists. I want to be a creator. My creations I think are just like not uh, music or, you know, uh, light fixtures. And so it's not art. Uh, someone would tell me that I'm, I'm wrong. It is, it could potentially be anyway. Uh, so artists, I, I find often have this like concept of, 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 of marketing as like, uh, I don't know, selling out or marketing as against the truth in the, in the craft of it, of whatever they're pursuing. And I think that that's a shame to see the world that way. And it, it is, one of the things I try and tell people is like, you're being of service when you uh, realize that your audience or your customer or your friends and family live a life that doesn't, you know, that you're not the center of. And so when you ask or show up again and remind them of your work, want like the time where they're able to actually see it and sit with it, they're going to say, oh, thank you. I'm so glad that they emailed again. I'm going to let me support. Let me do the thing that they've asked me to do. Let me buy the plate. Let me tell friends about the Kickstarter campaign. And it's actually like you're, the more you show up and you don't have to be like hard selling just, but the more that you show up and remind people that you exist, I think you can consider it being of service to them because they want to support you. They want to show you, um, fandom or love or, um, whatever the thing is. The other thing is, uh, you 3D print and use technology in a pretty, uh, I'll call it traditional field. And I, I love that as a, I don't know, uh, opportunity. Like as a, uh, I think that the, I, I like to think about Venn diagrams. You're like, all right, well, what's an ancient thing or a, a outdated thing? And how can I in, you know, infuse technology into that space and create something different. And I love that it's maybe a little bit of a, I don't want to say mistake, but a pleasant surprise that shows up. And when I think of bread angle, I think of, you know, I'll call it harder angles in the products that come to mind first for me, your light fixtures, for example. And the thought that that wasn't necessarily intentional out of the gate gives me just like a happy serendipity smile. No, yeah. I mean, sometimes the mistakes are the things that you should fall into the most. And it, and it, it wasn't necessarily it was a mistake. It was my naivety on how these digital programs work. <laughs> and I think, you know, being able to embrace those opportunities that you wouldn't have come to intentionally sometimes can 
kind of create really good paths and a creative practice. Um, and, I, and I think as far as the marketing goes, I mean, it, we live in a in a world where we get excited by other people that are excited. You know, it's voyeurism, and so kind of the you know the people I subscribe to are people that are doing things that you know I wished I was doing, or mm-hmm. things that are inspiring. And I think yeah, if you have something you're passionate about and and excited about, it's 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 not a burden to other people to to be sharing that as long as you do it gracefully. Love that. Um... What, what what 3D printer did you use? Do you use? Do you st- I mean, I imagine you still 3D print. Oh, we might be for Yeah, so okay. I think I'm back. Yeah, yeah okay. we uh, the studio, fortunately, and um, kind of by happenstance, the, the Bright Angle studio is right next door to the Asheville Makerspace. Mm. And so all of a sudden I was connected to these incredible... Um, you know, technicians, engineers, tinkerers, and and also this library of tools such as uh, Taz 6 3D printer, which we ended up buying our own um, last year, and a laser cutter and a uh, small CNC mill. And so there were all these prototyping tools that uh, provided an opportunity to be able to explore form without starting in clay mm. uh, and indicatively ended up kind of creating and defining the aesthetic that is the bright angle. I love it. And so how would you, uh, I guess, uh, you know, that's the Kickstarter uh, was, I'll call it, you know, part of phase one. Uh, how many phases would you say you've stepped through over the last uh, five years? Well, I, I think the biggest thing that I wasn't quite aware of, even though I was, you know, selling a lot of pots um, on the road and, and, you know, with the initial Kickstarter is I didn't have a background in, in business. Mm. And so what I, it took me a long time to realize that I was creating, you know, quantifiable products that had, uh, financial ramifications to them. You know, I think a lot, a lot that happens with a lot of craftspeople is, um, they're like, well, I'm just making this mug and I'm going to give it this arbitrary price. Well, that's kind of how we started it. I had some preliminary spreadsheets, but they weren't robust enough to actually, um, kind of define the whole financial picture. So it took, I mean, really it took a few years before I, like now I have a spreadsheet where I can plug in, you know, the exact number of minutes it takes for each step of the process, how much materials it takes. And I'm able to, you know, get a number that tells me how many molds I need, how many fit in a kiln, um, and ultimately kind of have an exact price of what I need to charge in order to make it you know, a viable and sustainable product. How has that happened? So do you have, you know, a business coach? Do you go, do you take classes online? Have you you just been tinkering in Excel or Google Sheets or whatever for the last five years and it's all of a sudden now there's a thing that that is working? Um, Because I I love that as a progression um, because I'll suspect, I'm willing to argue that most people who are listening who identify artists are either in need of that evolution or um and are aware of it and just don't know how to make that change um or are like fighting the realization that that's probably something that i need to do i just don't know if i want to yet right 
Well, and it, I mean, it takes a certain scale, but it ultimately has to do with cash flow. Okay. Um, I think being an entrepreneur and understanding what that meant, you know, it took time too. It's like, well, there, there has to be, you know, enough cash coming in in order to um, pay for marketing or, or pay for other, other opportunities. Um, and, and so that, yeah, balancing that too, I have very um, robust cash flow projections and financial forecasting um, that I do as well. But the biggest resource initially was Mountain BizWorks. Um, they were incredible. I mean, they uh, provided a loan in order to build out the studio. They provided numerous different coaches for all different, um, you know, parts of the business side of things that I was learning. Um, and then I connected with uh, um, the Elevate program, the Venture Asheville, mm-hmm. the Chamber of Commerce. And then that was another resource that helped me really understand what business was and what it took in order to, you know, create a sustainable and scalable business. So both of those resources were incredibly influential in, in my growth. I love that. I Here's hoping that 2021 uh, were officially sponsored by Venture Asheville and or uh, Mountain BizWorks because uh, it's it, they are, I will call them as much of a like foundation in Asheville as anything that I've heard in all of the businesses that we've talked to so far. So it doesn't surprise me that one or both of them have shown up as uh, resources for you. Um, when you think... So two words that have shown up in the conversation that I I mentally flagged. One are like team employees. The other is um, cash flows marketing. And so uh, pick your poison. I'd love to hear about uh, either and how they started. So did did you have formal like a team or employees at the at the early days? Were you able to pay people? Because because people it feels like the cost of a team would be about as big as any of the inputs in making a physical good. It would be as big as the kiln or the the clay. And I don't know if those are the right words, but labor cost is always a gigantic line item on, on a business that has people. And so I'm wondering, did you start there? Um, and then maybe we'll finish with, with some talks about uh, marketing and, and cash flows. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I had, that single employee, um, when I was working in my basement and actually I'd never managed anybody. I'd never had employees. I really didn't know what I was doing. Um, fortunately my father's a contract lawyer, so he kind of helped, um, organize a structure for what that employment relationship looked like, um, which was really beneficial in creating expectations, um, which are ever evolving. But uh, yeah, the original team was really tight knit. We were really excited about about kind of having built the studio and releasing the collection. Um, one thing, yeah, I mean, marketing comes next. We can talk about that. But that ultimately is always the most challenging thing. You know, like they say if you build it, they will come. And I, I, I mean, maybe if you wait twenty years, right? <laughs> yeah. but, but it really um, it it takes a lot of energy, effort, and the right people and right minds and strategy in order to to market brand products um but yeah the team is ever evolving we pretty much have only employed potters we have had a couple people with um other craft backgrounds um but i think people that understand ceramics and the materials have a better grasp on what the job looks like 
Sure. And it's, but it's production work, you know, uh, as far as the, the production manager and assistants go, um, they're, they're working with material doing very labor intensive processes that are repetitive, but, um, you know, it can be really therapeutic, just kind of throwing your headphones on and, and going through a run of the same actions on a certain mug or something. Sure. Um, and so, yeah, it's been, uh, it, labor is definitely the most expensive part of, you know, producing the products or the cost of goods sold. Uh, and then obviously you have to incorporate the manufacturing overhead. And how big is the team today? Well. Uh, right now there's four people, four people. That's, um, that's crazy. That's big uh, t- to me. And, you know, we, we've had uh, businesses with, I don't know, 100 employees, I think might might be on the, the largest side so far. And um, I think having a full-time employee sounds like a terrifying next step. And so um, to have four is, is special. And so when you think, uh, I guess, back to early days and spreadsheets where you're like, you know, the clay is a hundred dollars a box. I make a uh, hundred plates. Okay. So it needs to be more than a dollar a plate. And I feel like that's an overly simplified model to build a successful business on. I, it sounds like you've taken out loans, right? You said mountain biz work with a loan. I don't know if you've, t- you've taken investment because you did do a pitch competition where I saw you first. So is part of your growth or I'll say like uh, self-education in financial modeling and looking at cash flows and thinking about the business like a actual business versus a thing that you do. Um, is that in part due to, you know, seeking outside investments at, at different stages? Yeah. Last year um, I pitched for six months to a number of different organizations and, and, um, funds, different groups. And right before the pandemic, I had a substantial, I was prepared to sell, you know, a part of the business for a fairly substantial amount of capital. And then the stock market crashed. And so everyone got cold feet. It was really close to providing, we were going to hire, you know, a full-time marketing and sales team have fairly substantial marketing budget and the big push was into lighting. I mean, that's mm-hmm. something that I've always been really passionate about, but it's, uh, it's an avenue that isn't explored as much as I think it could be in ceramics. And we have this porcelain that we're able to really make glow and it comes alive when, when a bulb is inside. Um, and the lighting market is, uh, it's really interesting because you have um, customers or consumers that appreciate design. They really get it. So you're not working on trying to find customers that balk at the idea of spending $40 on a mug. They, these customers are buying furniture, they're buying art, and they, they understand what the value is of creating these things. So um, it's a really exciting uh, market to be moving into. And But yeah, we, we were really close to kind of closing those investments. The discussions are still going on but with the pandemic there was mm. so much uncertainty that you know kind of selling part of the business and and you know acquiring the capital wasn't something that could happen during all the uncertainty um, but with that I wrote a 50 page business plan and had three year cash flow projections and very solid strategy of what we needed to do to move forward and fortunately it's all still happening just a lot slower mm-hmm. <laughs> 
Um, but organic growth can also be exciting and fun. Um, and so that's what this year has really been about is kind of maintaining the course from that business plan, but also, um, you know, making sure that we have, you know, the right projects lined up to, to have good cash flow. Sure. That, um, thank you for sharing that. And, um, I want to ask a question with the realization that this last year has, you know, a pandemic. So granted that's a, uh, I'll call it a wild hair that no one could have prepared for, but, um, can you remember back to some of the first conversations either with a mountain biz work where they're like, Hey, you say, I need a loan. And they say, sure. Tell us about the business or, Hey, we want, I'm looking, I'm open to outside investors and they say, sure, tell us about the business. And some of the first either, you know, I think about a document, a, a business plan is surely something that everyone would have uh, heard of or seen when they Google it. Are there anything that kind of stand out to you as like, oh, I didn't know that I would need to know that. Let I got to get smart on this new concept that I'd never thought of. Uh, well, the first thing they look at is the financials, right? So they'll typically, if they like the kind of summary page, then they'll automatically go straight to what your projections are um, and what the margins are on the products. And so I spent, you know, six months developing financial forecasting and now I've got weekly cash flow projections, which is amazing. I know exactly how much money I'm going to have at the beginning and end of every week, which seems uh, you know, a little excessive, but it's also really, uh, it, it, it saved a lot of stress over starting the business and building it for five years of not knowing what was going to be happening the next month. And now I'm able to really have a strong sense of what's going in and what's going out in order to um, budget and, and figure out what decisions to make based on, you know, grounded in financial realities. I, so I'd say, yeah, so I'd say, I'd say the financials were definitely the biggest thing because, you know, it's, it's easy. It's not easy. Um, there's a lot of great ideas out there, um, but ultimately they're not going to be successful, sustainable or scalable unless the financials make sense. And so having a firm grasp on that was something that uh, took time. And that was, you know, the biggest takeaway from building that business plan and putting the financials together was now I have a really sound understanding of what the business looks like and what it's doing, um, you know, from a numbers perspective. Yeah. And, and, and being able to look back and say, here's what happened and look forward and say, so here's what I think. Even if an investor says, I don't think that what you just wrote is real, they might say, but I think you're off by like 30%. And even then, like, I think that's okay. Like I know how you're thinking about the future, and it that it seems to me that that's the real exercise. They'll argue potentially on uh, on future forecasts and assumptions if it's if it's a multiple of the past, right? Uh, well, I don't know that you can possibly grow at fifty percent. Well, we have the capacity, but do you have the customers? And and so there can be pushback, but having it, having something to push back against, is like is the is the key it seems. And I have a, I have a friend who says that, um, if they don't push back, they're not interested enough, move on. 
right? Like you want right. someone who's going to say, well, I think, you know, you have it at, oh, uh, uh, you know, a 30% growth year over year. I think it's probably, I think that sounds aggressive. You might really only experience, you know, uh, 20%. That means they're interested. Like that's a good argument to be having about like what, uh, what the future looks like. And so I, I, I commend you on, on what I'll call, um, I don't know, the, the becoming forecasty or financially literate as a business owner. That is not easy. I'm working through it. I I know that I, I, as a business major, I might've had a little bit of exposure to financial statements earlier, but, um, it's one thing to, it's one thing to take a, you know, accounting 101 course. It's another thing to actually reconcile bank statements and, and understand what's happening. Do you run out of QuickBooks? Yeah. Okay. Yep. It's all on QuickBooks. And then I export it to Google Sheets. So I have my master projections and forecasting calculator on Google Sheets that comes from QuickBooks. Interesting. I, uh, there's a, uh, I don't, I don't call it a dream that might make it sound too real or important, but I, one of the futures of making it a natural to me is like help is, is doing things like, Hey, we're going to all talk about QuickBooks this month. Like QuickBooks is the thing because I've tried so hard to get good at QuickBooks over the last couple of years. Um, and I've not heard of like exporting into Google sheets and, and modifying from QuickBooks. And that has, I want to do a whole nother conversation on what that looks like. Cause I'm, I'm a geek and I like to know, uh, you know, what numbers are going to look like in, you know, the month ahead and the week ahead. So I, I love that, you know, cash flow on that granular of a level. Um, the next part of the conversation, which we've mentioned that we talk about uh, and haven't gotten to yet is it's one thing to have a couple thousand followers on Instagram um, and use an email list to launch a Kickstarter. It's another thing to, to have a marketing budget and think about marketing as a, as a business. And I'm wondering how has your relationship with marketing evolved over the last five years? Yeah. Well, we've worked with like five different marketing agencies. Um, we've had three marketing managers that were there for fairly extended periods of time. We have built out and have a very good framework for what campaign launches look like. Um, the website's, you know, been polished and up, it's constantly updated. Uh, but I think in, in our industry, well, it, we've, we've shifted a lot with the brand too. I mean, we, there was a period of time where we had resident artists, so we'd have, um, other artists from the community or, or nationally recognized artists come into the studio and create bodies of work. And then we'd sell limited edition runs of those. Um, unfortunately it wasn't quite a financially viable part of the business, but it was kind of something that was exciting as far as content went for, mm. for our followers and it, it created a lot of growth. Um, my specialty is certainly not marketing and I, uh, have a fairly private life. So I'm not somebody that's on Instagram. In fact, I just got Instagram on my phone, uh, after like three years the wow. other day, uh, cause we did a giveaway for the table lamp. Um, and so I, you know, I was curious what the feedback was, but so we've had people running the Instagram account, um, for the past year, I've been managing emails, website updates. Um, but really the focus has been selling, selling lighting and, and that's more of a B2B, um, business. And that's something that, uh, I'm far better at is working with, 
um, potential buyers and customers, especially that are reselling. And so for the past year specifically, my focus has been on, on acquiring partnerships that are other businesses that will sell the lights. So it's mm. been less of a focus on the direct consumer on retail on the website and more of a focus on, on larger prod, uh, products and projects. And the other thing is, you know, a significant part of our business um, from time to time over the years has been custom production. We're one of the only ceramic studios in the country that can take a 3D model, um, work with the client or customer on, on dimensioning and, and prototyping it, 3D printing it, making a mold system and creating a scalable method of production so we can, um, you know, do large scale runs of their products. And with that capacity and opportunity, we've done a lot of custom production. And that's something that um, retailers like Uncommon Goods and even East Fork Pottery in town, we made bases for them for a year. And so that's definitely been, you know, part of the B2B side of things that that I really enjoy doing that I'm comfortable with and, and working with with new clients and um, kind of alleviate some of the pressure of, of focusing on direct to consumer sales on our website. That's wonderful. I, um, I, I think that there's a lot of uh nuance in the difference of building a brand that speaks to a end user and building a brand that speaks to end users and also buyers or other brands and distributors and um, words that sound like distributor or rhyme with it. And so uh, I know that the economics change, right? So now you're selling at a wholesale price, which is sometimes paper thin margins, depending on the industry. And I'm wondering um, what needed to change, as you said, um, we're going to think more about wholesale than direct-to-consumer. Obviously, it seems like packaging might change, but I don't know if that's true. And then um, pricing or, or product runs, what are some of the details that uh, showed up that you might not have prepared for? Yeah, well, with this spreadsheet where I'm able to calculate exact costs on everything is um, it's an understanding of the scale and the process that goes into each product. So every every time you know a client comes to us with an idea, we say, well, hey, here are the kind of design specs that we need to think within in order to establish this project and make it efficient and mutually financially mutually beneficial. Mm-hmm. Um, for us too, especially shifting into lighting, it wasn't only kind of a passion and our opportunity to embrace porcelain, you know, our material and the porcelain, we mix everything from scratch, too. So the porcelain we've developed is something that um, we're the only ones that that can make the specific recipe. Not to say that there aren't other translucent porcelains out there. I mean, most porcelains translucent when it's fired hot enough. Um, but this one's really robust. We're able to make complex shapes. It does what we want it to, and we have full control over the materials. And so knowing that we can make it glow, we were thinking, well, what is... Because with pottery, inevitably, margins are razor thin. Mm. You know, it takes a lot of time. Everything's still handmade, even though we use molds. You know, I mean, the amount of time that, that people are working on things is is significant. And so um, we were trying to figure out what, you know, what could bring us the most value as far as a, a product goes. And because the lighting industry um, is synonymous with the furniture industry, there's more of an appreciation for vessels that 
uh, hold light rather than vessels that hold water. Um, And, you know, it's something that I'm passionate about. I have a number of pendants and sconces up in my house, and it's really nice to consider light and the spaces that are lit and how that changes your mood and affects conversation and interactions with other people and your activities. Sure. Yeah, I uh, admittedly am the type who doesn't necessarily think about that. But what I do think about are uh, where opportunities to find increased margin for about the same amount of work <laughs> uh, exists. And so I, I, whether or not, you know, I have ever thought about a sconce before or thought that a sconce is a pastry um, which is not, it's a scone and that's a bad joke perhaps, but, uh, <laughs> but like I might have said, well, like if, if this amount of work makes us X, where would the same amount of work make us, you know, 1.7 X or two X. And if looking around, I realized that, Hey, lights, uh, are cool. And also it's about the same thing. It's just like a cup is this and then a light is this and there's need a wire hole. Like it's about the same thing. Uh, let's, let's do sconces. Um, so I, I love that we can be different and, and move towards the same uh, destination. That's fascinating. And so then as a, I selling B2B bunch of emails, are you going to different types of trade shows or are you just like, cold emailing uh, buyers or directors or whatever the right term might be in that industry? Yeah, well, we were supposed to go to a couple trade shows this year that got got postponed. The one that was most exciting to get into is Architectural Digest in New York. Um, and I think they're now planning a 2021 show. Uh, so hopefully that happens. Um, but that's, you know, that's definitely a great way to meet people in the industry. Um, but fortunately, we built up the brand enough to have, uh, you know, brand recognition when approaching other retailers and, and partners in, in the lighting industry um, with interior designers and architects as well. And the most exciting one that just happened is um, a company called Y Lighting. And mm. So they're a subsidiary of Y Design Group, which owns Lumens and, and Y Lighting. But I think writing that business model, I think the first um, kind of partner on, on the list to acquire for the sales strategy was Y Lighting. And we recently signed a contract to be the first um, exclusive ceramic lighting brand with them. We're launching in, in January. So really excited about that. It's amazing. Um, it's nice to have an opportunity to be recognized um, for lighting, you know, kind of beyond bases, mugs, oil bottles, and some of our staple tabletop goods. And, and so if you're not in the, in the space, what, I mean, what would be an example of, of a wide lighting and maybe a different uh, industry? Like, are they kind of like a, the primary channel in, in the space? What, what is, what would that mean to someone who's not um, an interior designer perhaps? Sure. So their, I mean, their main competitors would be um, Whiteology, Design Within Reach, okay, um, Wayfair, and so really more like home decor, um, high-end home decor uh, retailers. Um, but they're, yeah, Wild Lighting is great because they they carry some of the kind of most notable lighting brands: Roland Hill, Hubbardton Forge, um, and then some great glass pendant companies, which you know we like to. Um, stay in touch with because we're kind of making 
similar products, mm. same ilk. Um, but yeah, it's it's more kind of the the home decor uh, shopping online retailers. So I, 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 that is very helpful for me to place it. I imagine a listener as well. And so, um, love to take a second to try and think through perhaps the pros and cons list that you thought through while making a business plan and said like let's find a partner channel sale distributor type fit. Um, I, I I imagine one with a giant brand. Clearly, there's value there. It was there ever a fear that, like, if you go with just you know one, then you could make the wrong choice? Like, I'm just wondering what thoughts were you thinking because that is, um, I'm incredibly excited for 2021 for you. I just also have never had to make a choice like that. I'm wondering what you thought. Yeah, well, it's it's still winding down. I mean, we'd onboarded with a couple of their competitors that we've had to pull out from. Um, but we ended up ultimately going with Y Design. When we're looking for new partners, it really is like multi multifaceted opportunities. And so we'll not only be selling our collection on their website, and because we'll be exclusive, we'll have homepage placement and placement in the catalogs, and they'll be um, placing a purchase order of inventory to kind of you know solidify and initiate the partnership. Great. Um, but they are also interested in producing other lighting and working with their design team to um, kind of facilitate collaborations with some of the other businesses. So um, like Hubberton Forge is a steel lighting company that's incredibly well known. They've been around for a decade or two, I, I guess. And, and th they really focus on the armatures and the hardware. And so we have an opportunity to work with them um, and, you know, diffuse the bulb. So that's really what our, our, studio is built for as far as lighting goes is creating fixtures or sculptural vessels that go around the light bulbs to diffuse them and and you know help uh kind of create or cast certain light off of off of armatures so we're we're looking forward to kind of all the kind of facets of of the partnership and the opportunities that it'll provide with y lighting but it was really hard to to you know say no to the other opportunities i think it's really easy to get buried mm. on some of these sites online. And yeah. so having um, a partnership where you're exclusive and they're invested in you seem to make the most sense. Um, uh, and it's funny, I found, I think I got in contact with them through LinkedIn. I found the merchandising manager at Y Lighting and I messaged her 10 times. And eventually she looked at the catalog and emailed me right back and said, Hey, we want to take you on as an exclusive brand. I said, okay. Wow. <laughs> People pause real quick. You 10 emails or 10 in messages or 10, whatever. I mean, that is, uh, I, I, it's not unique, but it's a truism, right? Like, wow. What if you had stopped at five? <laughs> right. Like what Until if you had stopped at five? <laughs> it, it would have been you would have been well within your reason to have stopped reaching out and i'm so glad that you didn't um and like they just okay, that's amazing okay um and so is there a term on this I, your father's a contract lawyer so i imagine everything's gonna like is, is as good as it can be but uh what is a relationship like that is is it indefinite is, is there like a year window a two-year window where you're exclusively sold through them um we agreed uh, to do it for a year. Cool. So we're going to try it for a year and, and see how it goes. That's really exciting. I can't wait to hear how it goes. Um, but uh, so many parts of that 
tale give me uh, the warm fuzzies and 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 I hope uh, inspire people. And so, typically at this point, I'll ask like, what are you looking forward to in 2021 in your business? What are you thinking about? I'm going to go ahead and guess it. This partnership might be one of the primary things you're thinking about in 2021. Yeah, I mean, any opportunity to you know really keep pushing the light. We have nine pendants so far, um, but one thing I stepped back last year and created a modular mold library, which essentially means there's all these plaster mold parts that are like Legos, and so you can build a custom mold that creates all these different shapes. So there's a whole shelf full of hundreds of these mold parts and infinite possibilities just waiting to be played with. And, you know, um, unfortunately, a lot of the time, uh, time is elusive in the studio. And so it, it's exciting to have some opportunities to be able to revisit the mold library frequently and, and design some new things. We recently launched um, a new collection of bases with the modular mold library and a new collection of planters. Um, I mean, as you can see, I'm turning into a plant fanatic yeah. for COVID. So, <laughs> Shout out to got, the YouTube channel. If you're not uh, subscribed on YouTube, this might be the time to do it. You have the most beautiful looking, uh, I'll call it a greenhouse, but I know that it's not. It is, it's beautiful. My kitchen. It's your kitchen. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, tons of, of living things. And are any of those uh, made by Bright Angle? I'm seeing a couple with some harder angles. I imagine those are you. Yeah, so this, yeah, these are part of the new collection. And, and the reason why we designed them is we did a show called the Philadelphia Museum Show, which was online. And um, and then also I just kept acquiring plants and I needed pots to put them in. I still, you know, there's some terracotta pots yep. which work really well, but I really wanted to see what I could do with this with this mold system. And so I, I got to make some pots. It was really fun. And and for those of you listening on, uh, on the podcast, I, I would say... From my angle, they might be octagonal or some sort of number of sides in total. They follow what would be a, a relatively familiar uh, shape with like a wider base than a, a narrower neck and a, and a slightly jutted out all head if I'm going to make a body out of the, 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 the <laughs> vessel, except there are hard angles, which you've already you know taught us is not really something you can do um when you're what turning clay is the right term is it spinning clay yeah turning clay? Uh, throwing 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 pilot. clay dang come on <laughs> uh so it, it very hard to do and is uh i'll call it a, a trademark at this point of of your brand does that sound fair yeah yeah i mean it, you know we named it the bright angle for a reason and i think you know part of the idea is to help illuminate spaces um and we happen to have a lot of angles in the work to do it. So I love it. Um, perfect. So uh, gonna thinking about wrapping up and putting a bow on this business part of the conversation, um, anything that we uh, kind of talked about that maybe you wanted to just wrap up as business conversation? The answer can be no. Uh, <laughs> cool. Think, perfect. Yeah, and and so then we'll transition into a, a what I'll call... Um, a little bit of a conversation on making it in Asheville and we have a Asheville conversation. So now um, you mentioned that your car broke down and that's sort of how you found Asheville and, or uh, was there any rhyme or reason? I know you said Penland school um, and maybe you were assistant for a moment. 
Yeah, yeah. So I mean, essentially, the ultimate goal was to get to Penland to assist my my friend Matt Kelleher. Um, but I, I, it's not in Asheville, right? Right. So no. I visited my friend um, who'd been living here for about a year, and we went to the old wedge or the only wedge that was there in 2012, and sure. uh, my car wouldn't start. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, I, I, I don't know. There was something about being at that place that just felt really right. And I love the mountains. Every time you come north, south, east, west into Asheville, you're going over and into this beautiful valley. Um, but the most special thing about being at the Wedge in the initial days I was here was um, the community and connections that existed back then. You'd sit down and you'd be next to a woodworker like Tom Gibson would be around or Tina Council had her metal studio um, down there uh, in in Payne's old studio or Hayden Wilson, Kate Adams, and the glass blowers. And so it was just amazing. You'd be sitting there with all these different artists and all of a sudden collaborations would happen. Um, food would happen. And we were all kind of going through this Asheville craft life together, um, learning from each other, growing with each other and drinking a lot of iron rail and Payne's pale, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and so that, yeah, I mean, that really for the first few years that, that existed back then before a lot of, you know, these artists kind of moved studios or, you know, the scene changed down there. It was a really amazing community to feel a part of. Wow. So you sort of took my next question and you might've answered it. Uh, but I like to do word association, Asheville and the word community, what shows up for you? It sounds like it might be the wedge and what you just talked us through. Yeah, I mean, that was definitely like the local watering hole. The end mm. of the day at five or so, everyone would come down from all the different studio buildings and we'd share pictures and talk about craft art and or whatever else yeah. was going on. Um, yeah, it was it was really amazing to, to have people going through the same things. And they're all problem solvers, yeah. you know, that were incredibly skilled. This area has some of the most incredibly skilled craftspeople in the world. Um, they understand materials and and uh, how to work with them, make them, and that you know it has to do with the history and materials that are available. And then Penland School of Craft is nearby, and a number of other craft schools within a two-hour radius. Um, but a lot of a lot of these craftspeople have settled in Asheville and in the in the surrounding areas. So, well, uh, f- for what it it's worth, Sarah and I, I think also had a moment at the Wedge on our first visit. Where we had, you know, we had walked from downtown from, you know, kind of proper Asheville because we're used to walking 30 minutes in our, we lived in Brooklyn. We'd walk 30 minutes on just, you know, almost every day to get to a, either a subway stop that was more convenient or to get into, call it Williamsburg. And, and so we're like, I don't know, this, people talk about river arts as a concept put it on the map. I'm like, no, no, it's 24 minutes. How crazy could it be? And it was kind of crazy. Like it's a, there's a real kind of hill the whole way down. And I, yeah. the hill going back up is, was, you know, less fun, but, uh, the walk down there and having a beer at the, the original wedge, I guess. And we, we were around that time of day. People were, um, you know, pre COVID sitting with strangers <laughs> at our, at our little, uh, bench it was it was beautiful and so i I get how um that can be the thing you think um with that i mean when when looking ahead to 2021 as a 
person. Um, or I, I guess this will come out in 2021. And so we have a magic wand question that we like to ask. And so the, the answer can have to do with business. It could have to do with whatever you want. But right now, um, if I had a magic wand or someone in our audience had a magic wand, what request might you uh, make? Ooh, that's a hard one. Um, well, I'm working on getting a puppy. If anybody out there... <laughs> Cute. <laughs> Yeah, I've, I've applied for uh, to adopt puppies for the past couple months. Built a fence, I'm good to go. So yeah, I mean, it's you know, it's a pretty simple uh, kind of request, but something to uh, um, uh, to get through COVID stuff is you know having an activity to do. But yeah, I think that that's um, yeah, it'd be nice to have. I've lived with dogs for many years, and um, and I think a puppy would be a really fun companion bring to the studio and. You know, uh, I love walking around this town. So, yeah, <laughs> I guess that's my magic wand. That's a really good request. <laughs> Possibly had a lot of requests at this point. That might be my favorite. I don't know if it's because uh, Sarah and I are, are experiencing a little bit of puppy fever in our own world. Like we keep <laughs> like I keep sending her dog Instagram meme things. <laughs> and so uh, awesome request. The last thing, last question of this podcast is if someone was listening, loved your story, wants to support, participate, follow along, where would they find you on the World Wide Web or the Internet at large? Yeah, so our website is thebrightangle.com. Um, and then we have Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and the handle for that is The Bright Angle. Um, yeah, those are kind of the primary. You sign up for our email list. We We do... Uh, frequently launch new products and have uh, exclusive sales. And so it's, yeah, we, we don't bombard people, but we def definitely remind them that we're out there making beautiful things. So I love it. Well, thank you for the time. We'll have links to all of that in the show notes and on our podcast page and uh, everywhere that we can, we'll, we'll link to you and to your products on this. So uh, thank you, Nick, for the time today. And I really, really look forward to 2021 for you. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me.